0: Thank you for tuning in to a sermon from Redemption Hill Church. I'm so glad that you've joined us. It's our prayer that this will lift your heart and encourage you, to set your eyes more fully on Jesus as we open God's word together. You can join us anytime in person or online in our live stream. You can find that at redemptionhildc.org. If you're not in D.C., we encourage you to get involved in a local church where you live for the sake of encouragement and accountability in a local body. But we're also glad to have you join us and and walk through this study with us. If you'd like to support the ministries of Redemption Hill, you can do so at our website, again, redemptionhilldc.org. Father, we thank you for the the ability to come together. We thank you for this season of Advent as we consider hope and now preparation, as we remember what it is to live in the in-between, that we are in the already, that your kingdom has been established in Christ, that all of your promises have found their yes and their fulfillment in him, and yet we continue to wait for his coming again. And so as we look toward the holidays, would you help us to, to really understand and to embrace and to experience that sense of waiting and not just get uh, skim by on the surface, but to see that you are a God who meets us in the valley, who meets us in the waiting. As we open your word today, we pray that you would help us to be able to see the beauty of faith and what you call us to and what's really hard for us. in in, that faith takes self-surrender. And so we lift this time to you and lift our hearts to you and ask that you would speak to us. And we pray in the name of Christ, amen. Tonight we come to an easy question that none of us ever wrestle with, and that is, how do you know God's will for your life? (laughs) Does God, in the time that we have, and it's an extremely long chapter, which means I have even less time than normal to try to cover this. Um, So does God even have a will for your life? Does he care about the specifics of your life? I mean, I think at times it can feel like life is playing the game of operation. You remember Operation? Does that game exist anymore? Because where you're like, you have those tweezers, and you're trying to get the little bone pieces out. And if you touch the side, you get zapped. It can feel like that living sometimes, right? Like you're just trying to get through, and if you take one wrong twitch, you get zapped. Well, we've been following the journey of faith in the life of Abraham. Abraham is the father of three major faiths Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. Along the way, we've seen a lot of ups and downs for Abraham. This man of faith has been pretty inconsistent. He's had a lot of doubt. He's had a lot of mistakes along the way. The one consistent we've seen is God's faithfulness along the way. Abraham and Sarah were finally given the child that was promised in Isaac, and so catching us up to where we are right now, they were finally given this pro- child of promise, Isaac, in chapter 21, and then in, in the next chapter, 22, we saw the great test of faith that is, that is probably the greatest test of faith in Scripture outside of Christ in Gethsemane and going to the cross Famous in scripture and outside of the biblical text, the call to Abraham from God to offer up his son, Isaac. If you remember, Abraham had confidence when Isaac, as they were going up the mountain, and Isaac said, "Uh, Father, I see the wood for the altar. I see the fire. Where's the lamb? And Abraham said to him, God will provide a lamb for himself. And then we saw last week, that, um, in the last passage, that, that Sarah has died. And so Sarah died at 127 years old. And so as we come to the text today, that means that Isaac now is at least 37 years old. And so Abraham and Isaac are navigating life together, post-Sarah, and we see today what it looks like to live by faith. And we'll see today, I hope you can see today, that faith is found in the freedom of self-surrender. But we don't really like the idea of surrender. So let's see what we see in the text. This is a very long chapter. Um, I'm going to read the whole thing, and we'll see what time we have left after that, and I'll deal with it. So, um, But we'll allow God's Word to speak, because that's more important than anything I have to say today. Now Abraham was old. Well, advanced. I'm sorry, just before we get into this, how often do we have to hear that, that phrase? <laughs> this poor guy, the thing that has been noted, every time you get to the New Testament, it's like, he was old, he was as good as dead. So, <laughs> Now, Abraham was old, well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had, put your hand under my thigh, that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell, but will go to my country and my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. And the servant said to him, Perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? And Abraham said to him, See to it that you do not take my son back there. The Lord God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred and who spoke to me and swore to me, to your offspring, I will give this land. He will send an angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. But if the woman isn't willing to follow you, then you'll be free from this oath of mine. Only you must not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. The servant took ten of his master's camels and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia, to the city of Nahor. And he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at the time of evening, the time when women go out to draw the water. And he said, "'O Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show show steadfast love to my master Abraham.'" Behold, I'm standing by the spring of water, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I say, please uh, let down your jar that I may drink, and who shall say, drink, and I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have appointed to your servant Isaac. By this I will know shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. Before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor. Abraham's brother came out with a jar on her shoulder the young woman was very attractive in appearance a maiden whom no man had known she went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up and the servant ran ran to meet her and said please give me a little water to drink from your jar and she said drink my lord and quickly let down her jar upon her hand and gave him a drink When she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran again to the well to draw water, and she drew for all his camels. The man gazed at her in silence to learn whether or not the Lord had prospered his journey or not. When the camels had finished drinking, the man took a gold ring weighing half a shekel and two bracelets for her arms weighing ten gold shekels and said, Please tell me whose daughter you are. Is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? And she said to him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. She added, We have plenty of both straw and fodder and room to spend the night. And the man bowed his head and worshipped the Lord and said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the, in the, in the way to the house of my master's kinsman." Then the young woman ran and told her mother's household about these things. Now Rebekah had a brother whose name was Laban. And Laban ran out to the man or toward the man to the spring. As soon as he saw the ring and the bracelets on his sister's arm... Arms, and he heard the words of Rebecca, his sister. Thus, the man spoke to me. He went to the man, and behold, he was standing by the camels at the spring. And he said, "Come in, O blessed one of the Lord. Why stand outside? For I have prepared the house and a place for the camels." And so the man came to the house and unharnessed the camels and gave straw and fodder to the camels. And there was water to wash his feet and the feet of the men who were with him. And then the food, and then food was set before him to eat. But he said, "I will not eat anything until I have." said what I have to say. And he said, speak on. So he said, I am Abraham's servant. The Lord has greatly blessed my master and he has become great. He has given him flocks and herds and silver and gold and male servants and female servants and camels and donkeys. And Sarah, my master's wife, bore a son to my master when she was old and to him he has given all that he has. My master made me swear, saying, you shall not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites in whose land I dwell. But you shall go to my father's house and to my clan and take a wife for my son. I said to my master, perhaps the woman will not follow me. But he said to me, the Lord before whom I have walked will send his angel with you and will prosper your way. You shall take a wife for my son from my clan from among my father's house. And then you will be free from my oath when you come to my clan. And if they will not give her to you, you will, you will be free from my oath. I came today to the spring and said, O Lord, the God of my master Abraham, if you now are are prospering the way that I go, behold, I am standing by the spring of water. Let the virgin who comes out to draw water, to whom I shall say, please give me a little water from your jar to drink, and who who will say to me, drink, and I will draw for your camels also. Let her be the one, the woman, whom the Lord has appointed for my master's son. Before I finished speaking in my heart, behold, Rebecca came out. "'with her water jar on her shoulder, "'and she went down to the spring and drew water. "'And I said to her, please let me drink. "'She quickly let down her jar from her shoulder "'and said, drink, and I will, water, I will give your camels drink also. "'And so I drank, and she gave the camels drink also.' Then I asked her, whose daughter are you? And she said, the daughter of Bethuel, Nahor's son, whom Milka bore to him. And so I put a ring on her nose and the bracelets on her arms, and I bowed my head and worshipped the Lord and blessed the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who had led me by the right way to take the, a daughter, the daughter of my master's kinsman for his son. Now then, if you are going to show steadfast love and faithfulness to my master, tell me. And if not, tell me that I may, re- that I may turn to the right hand or to the left. And Laban and Bethuel answered and said, The thing has come from the Lord. We can't speak to you bad or good. Behold, Rebekah is before you. Take her and go. Let her be the wife of your master's son, as the Lord has spoken. When Abraham's servant heard their words, he bowed himself to the earth before the Lord. And the servant brought out jewelry of silver and gold and garments and gave them to Rebekah. He gave, also gave to her brother and her mother costly ornaments. And he, he and the men who were with him ate and drank and spent the night there. When they arose in the morning, he said, send me away to my master. Her brother and mother said, let the woman, young woman remain with us a while, at least 10 days. After that, she may go. But he said to them, don't delay me since the Lord has prospered my way. Send me that I may go to my master. And they, they said, let us call the young woman and ask her. And they called Rebecca and said to her, will you go with this man? And she said, I will go. So they sent away Rebekah, their sister, and her nurse, and Abraham's servant, and his men. And they blessed Rebekah and said to her, O oh, sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands, and may your offspring possess the gate of those who hate him. Then Rebekah and her young women arose and rode on the camels and followed the man. Thus the servant took Rebekah and went his way. Now Isaac had returned from beir Lahai Roy and was dwelling in the Negev, And Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward evening, and he lifted up his eyes and saw, and behold, there were camels coming. And Rebekah lifted up her eyes, and when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel, and she said to the servant, "'Who is that man walking in the field to meet us?' And the servant said, "'It is my master.'" And she took the veil and covered herself, and the servant said, told Isaac all the things that he had done, and then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebecca, and she became his wife, and he loved her, and so Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I think it's actually appropriate that we have a meat cute to end our Hallmark movie story today. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so this is a long story. It gets a little repetitive because we have like the prelude and then the action and then the recap of it, but, but this, here we see an interesting story that's, again, fairly well known in Abraham and Isaac's lives, and we see Isaac and Rebekah, so another one of the three major patriarchs. What I'm going to argue here is that what the chapter shows is, the, is that faith and, it brings the freedom of self-surrender. Now I've wrestled with the wording here, we, as we talked through Genesis 22 and we walked through that, that offering up of Isaac and t- we talked about the way that that's been taken and the wrestling people have done with that story and in particular some philosophers who have wrestled with that and Kierkegaard's work on that. And one of the things that Kierkegaard had, had said and used was this word of infinite resignation. That is, he reflected on the binding of Isaac, and I'm I'm still not sure that that's quite right, but I almost want to use resignation because it's more offensive to us, (laughs) and I want to get our attention. So I did some, as is kind of classic, I looked up some words, and so resignation is a noun. It's the act of retiring or giving up a position. Okay, it's the acceptance of something undesirable but inevitable. I think that's why we don't like it. We don't want to do either one of those things. We don't want to give up a position we hold, and we don't want to accept something that we don't want, but it's it's inevitable, which I, I think that's often actually how we think about the will of God. And I don't want any chance that you leave here today thinking, this is what God is like. He's going to give me things that I don't want, that I hate, but I've got to be resigned to it. I don't think that's actually a good way to think about God's will. The God of the Bible is not presented in a deterministic or fatalistic way. No, the Bible has a tension throughout from start to finish between divine sovereignty and human responsibility. Now, we too quickly try to resolve those. We have theological systems where we try to say it, that we either will hold to divine sovereignty and that God is responsible for everything, or we will hold to human freedom and we are responsible for everything. And and listen, I'm on the Reformed team here, and so that we typically will lean more toward the sovereignty aspect, but, but can fall off the edge on that. And the reality is Scripture never resolves that tension. And as soon as we get to a point where we too simply resolve the tensions of the Bible, we're outside of the biblical witness and outside of of really an accurate representation of God or humanity. If our theological systems resolve it, then they can't actually be true. And so I do think it's helpful. Kierkegaard here, when he talks about faith, he says that faith is someone who has resigned everything absolutely and then again seized hold of all things on the strength of the absurd. He's saying that, that there's no reason that Abraham should believe that God will provide a lamb when they get to the top of the mountain. But he believes it with all that he has. Or he believes that he will, has been asked to offer up Isaac and that God will restore Isaac to him somehow. I think that there's a better way to think about this though. And I think, But I also think that Kierkegaard has shaped our approach. The reason I bring him up again is I think he's actually shaped our approach and understanding to faith more than we realize. Because this is often, if I was to ask you, ask many people, it was to go out on Capitol Hill today after the service in the rain and try to find somebody that wanted to stop and talk, like those people in the corner on Eastern Market that always want to stop and talk to you about good causes. I always feel bad. <laughs> They said, do you have a minute for children who are dying? And I'm like, no. <laughs> like, <laughs> um, sorry, this cup of coffee is very important. Um, but if, if, we, if I was to grab people today, and I, and I as talked about the nature of faith, I think Kierkegaard's actually had a lot of influence here. And so whether you're like, blah, 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 philosophy, I can't even pronounce his name. I think there's influence here, and that's the way this is important. Because I think when we think about faith, we often think about it as we have to come to a point of total resignation of, you know what, fine, I don't get my way, and then a complete belief or complete confidence in what Kierkegaard calls the absurd, of things that don't make sense logically. That's why people talk about taking a leap of faith. I don't think that's a biblical representation of faith, but I do think that has shaped the way that we think about it, even how Christians think about it. I think it's more helpful to think about in terms of surrender. Now again, let's start with the basics of surrender. Is, uh, it means to cease resistance to an enemy or opponent and submit to their authority. So God isn't necessarily our enemy, though Colossians 1 tells us that if you're not in Christ, that we are enemies of God. And, and, and in our minds, in, it, we, are, we hold anger toward him. So Maybe it is. There's a submission to God's authority, and that is the noun for surrender is the action of surrendering or coming under someone's authority. Um, I was just, I listened to the audiobook of uh, Bono's autobiography recently, which I actually really highly recommend. I don't do a lot of audiobooks. That's one I think is probably better than the written book because it incorporates all kinds of music, and you hear it in his voice, and it's really artistically done, and the book is like this big, and so, um, but he's, it, the whole book is called Surrender, and he has a whole struggle with faith himself, and he says there, the moment of surrender is the moment you choose to lose control of your life, the split second of powerlessness where you trust that some kind of higher power better be in charge because you certainly aren't. I think we're actually on something with that. This, I think, gets closer to what we've seen in Abraham's life, this journey of faith. That we've seen him and Sarah over and over again try to take charge of things, go to places to try to avoid the famine, try to pass each other off as brother and sister, to avoid you know, the tension of, of other kings trying to, trying to kill Abraham, that trying to make it happen to have children outside of the two of them. But there came a point where finally Abraham was like, you know what? I have no control over any of this. I am completely powerless. So God better be in charge. I think that's what we see in Genesis 22 when he's going up the mountain and and Isaac asks him and he says, well, if God's asked me to do this, he's got to provide the lamb. I have no control over this. I am completely powerless. So he better be in charge because I'm not. And so I think that, that that's important here. Now, self-surrender might be a little bit redundant, but I think it's important here it's because, again, there's this tension in Scripture that God is sovereign over all things. Human beings are totally responsible for ourselves and our actions, and in matters of faith, it is God who adopts and elects and calls us before the foundations of the earth And we are called again and again to repent and to believe and to turn and self-surrender, to allow, to give ourselves over. That's when Jesus says that if you're going to follow him, if anyone's going to come after him, we need to take up a cross daily to follow him. And what it looks like to gain life in Christ is that we need to lose our lives to find it. And so there's an act of self-surrender. This is like (laughs) you turning yourself in if there's a warrant out for you. And so there's three aspects of faith and the freedom of self-surrender I want to look at in the passage that is in front of us today with the time that we have. The first is that faith is confidence in God's promises. What we see in Abraham post Isaac's birth is that he has come to a point of complete faith that God's promises are true. Finally, it took Isaac for that to happen. That's why when he's asked to offer Isaac up to God, he's like, okay, okay. Fine. And now in chapter 24, I think the key verse to this entire 67 verses that we just read together is verse 7. You know, these are the last words that we have from Abraham in the entire Bible. So this is the last he speaks is to his servant here, Eleazar. And so as he says these words, this is what he leaves us with. This is his legacy that he leaves us with. And here we see his faith in its fullness. And it shows us that binding Isaac in that trip up that mountain was truly life-shaping and defining and changing for him. In verse 7, Eliezer rightly says, like, okay, Abraham, you want me to go to this place. They have no idea who I am. I'm going to show up there and say, this guy down in Canaan wants me to bring somebody back to be his son's wife. What if they say no? He goes, yeah, then you're released. But here's the confidence. This is what God told me. Verse 7, Lord God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred and spoke to me and swore to me. He says, what did God tell me? He said, to your offspring, I will give this land. So he's saying, the the two things that Isaac, that he told him, is like, don't, it can't be a Canaanite woman and and you're not gonna bring him out of this place. God told me that he would give my offspring this land. So he'll send an angel before you and he'll take away from my son there. (laughs) Like, I love the confidence in that. What does it mean that he's going to send an angel? If I'm Eliezer here, I'm like, what? Okay, God told you that he would give you and your offspring this land. Like, did he tell you he's sending an angel? Did an angel come to you and tell you that? Like, I have more questions here, Abraham. Eliezer didn't do that. He put his hand under his thigh, which is, when you actually read into the Hebrew on this, it is a very intimate ceremony of an oath-settling. Then thigh does not mean thigh. And swears to him, to find Isaac a wife. But if you remember we saw at the end of chapter 22 that God said to Abraham, listen, by myself I have sworn, this is God speaking, declares the Lord, because you have done this, you haven't withheld your son, your only son. I will surely bless you. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, as the sand that is on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Like, and so... Abraham here didn't speak with God again after that necessarily but what Abraham is saying there is he's saying no I didn't have to speak with God after that because how are my offspring going to outnumber the sand on the seashore if Isaac isn't married like this is basic logic here so he's got to have a wife uh, I don't think he should leave this place to get a wife every time Abraham left the land that God had given to him that, that went badly so he says well Eliezer we got to figure this out so uh, I don't know God will send an angel you'll see I love the confidence. This is the child of promise. If he can't fulfill the promise, then there won't be a great nation, an offspring to fill this place. Then they won't have. They won't fill the land that God has promised to them. Then all the peoples of the earth won't be blessed. And they can't, none of that can happen without, a chil- without children. None of that can happen, they can't have children without a wife. So Abraham just works backwards and said, well, God's got to do it. This is confidence in God's promise that gives Abraham the faith that the guy who has tried to control every part of his story so far is finally going, I don't know where the wife's going to come from. God's going to send an angel. I would love to have this kind of confidence in my life. Um, that... One of the few times I've seen this kind of confidence in my life is in my son. And I asked him if I could tell this story today, so I've gotten clearance. When he was early in grade school, if I, those of you who knew Simon when he was a little bit younger, um, he had a Padawan braid that was uh, amazing. I mean, the Padawan braid, if you don't know what that is, it's Star Wars that when you're a Padawan training to be a Jedi... You grow a braid. If you go watch the first three episodes, not the first three actual, but the second three, which are actually the first three, you can figure it out. (laughs) You grow this braid as you're in training. And so his Padawan braid was well past his shoulder. Um, And it was an amazing stage. But the first, it took him like, months of trying to explain this before we understood what he was trying to go for. And because he was just trying to explain it, and we'd give him a haircut, and he'd get frustrated. And we'd give him a haircut, and he'd get frustrated. And so finally, Alyssa figured it out, and she left a little square of hair kind of behind his ear. And the first day he went to school with it, it obviously wasn't long enough to have a braid. And so it just had, like, a braces rubber band around it, and it was a spike, and he came home that afternoon, and the, the braid was the, the the spike was out. The braid and and when we asked him, like Simon, what, why is it out? He said, you know, I don't know. He said he didn't. I don't. He didn't have a big, big reason. I mean, boys, sometimes when you ask him why, what, how was your day? They go, uh, so <laughs> why is it out? But but we asked like, you know, pressing a little bit. Were kids making fun of you for it? He goes, yeah. Oh, man, are you embarrassed? Like, do you want us to just, we can cut it off. Like, we could get the clippers right now. He said, no, they will see. <laughs> and they did. It was the coolest thing by the time he was in, like, third grade. And it, it's something we could not, have par- as parents, have predicted. That kind of confidence. There was a freedom in that kind of confidence. That's the kind of, that kind of confidence that Abraham shows here of just like saying to Eliezer, you know, how, what if she says no? How am I going to find this woman? How am I, you're just sending me up there blind? And Abraham's essentially saying, well, you will see. So he knows what God has promised and he believes it. And now he was told by God directly, and he still struggled to believe it along the way. And so I don't think that Scripture here is calling us that we don't don't admit that we have doubts or pretend that we don't have doubts. I mean, of course we're going to have doubts along the way. Like Abraham, we're going to mess up and try to control things along the way. But And there are aspects of God's will as we understand, like, what is God's will for us? There are some aspects that are universal for all of us. This is where the Westminster Shorter Catechism begins by asking, what is the chief end of man? Well, man's chief end is to glorify God and and enjoy him forever. It's to reflect God's image and likeness, caring for and stewarding what God has given us in all of creation and in our own lives. And So there are promises of God that we can cling to. All of God's promises find their yes in Christ. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That we were enemies of God, hostile in our minds, and Christ reconciled us to God through the cross. That there is now no condemnation for all who are in Christ Jesus. That we are new creations in Christ who is making, renewing all of creation, making it new and making all things new. We're, we're promised that if you believe with or confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. We're promised that if you, are, if you follow Jesus and, and surrender your life to him, that the spirit of God dwells inside of all who are in Christ. And that we are being sanctified and cleansed and will be carried through blameless and without stumbling to the end because our hope is secured in Christ. And so those are the promises we are given if you follow Jesus. And that's what faith is found in the freedom of self-surrender and the confidence that if those promises are true, every one of those promises, just like the promises to Abraham, are completely dependent on God. There is no way to be the one to force those into reality. And so we can step back and say, okay. They will see. Now, what about the specifics, though? Like, is God just a cosmic watchmaker that built this place and wound it up and let it go? Like, he got... To, got on to more important things. Like, what is God's will? When it usually, when we're asking those questions, it's like, is it that person that I'm supposed to marry, or is there a person I'm supposed to marry? Could God please send an angel ahead of me, like you did Eleazar? Are there camels and water that I should pull a trick like this? how do i know where god wants me to live what kind of ministry or serving is god calling me to do and so we get into the specifics and that gets to the second truth for us today is that that faith is confidence in god's priorities and faith trusts that god cares about the details there's a story in judges about gideon laying out a fleece that's essentially what the servant does here and I love this, You've, you know, if, if you caught it, he, he starts though, and this is important because I, I think that, like, this is a real question, does God work like this? Should we like do a dice roll, like God, if it's above, you know, seven, then it's this answer, if it's below seven, it's that answer, like gamble with our lives, are we going to cast lots somehow, are we going to draw straws, are we going to say, God, if this happens, then I'm going to trust this, and maybe, is that the normative thing? Probably not. But what does the servant do? There are points that we should notice here. Look at verse 12. He starts by calling on God's steadfast love and faithfulness. He reminds God of his promises. Oh, Lord God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today. and Show steadfast love to Abraham. He says, all right, now where am I? I'm standing by, he describes this scenario to God. All right? God, you've made these promises to Abraham. Uh, here's where I'm at. I'm standing by this water. The daughters of men in city are coming out to draw water. Um, if I ask one of them to please give me a drink of water, let it be the one who also offers to, to water my camels that, that is the one. That's, that's a pretty specific thing to ask God for. But there's more here than just some random thing of like, you know, God, make that person wink at me if they're supposed to be the one. Like this is, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> this is, there's, this is, there's a character being shown here by Rebecca of hospitality, of welcoming strangers in, and she shows up, shows up, and not only is she beautiful, the young woman was very attractive in appearance, but she also offers Eliezer a drink of water, and then she gives the, drink, the camels a drink of water as well, but not just a drink. Did you catch this? Until they were finished drinking. Do you know how much water a camel drinks? Uh, this was brought up in our, our staff study time on this passage, and so I did a, some research on this. Um, camels do not store water in their humps, <laughs> despite appearance and what you would assume, though their humps are filled with fatty tissue that stores water. So they kind of do. I'm going to say they do. <laughs> all right, so, but camels, there's all kinds of data, all kinds of different opinions on how much, ca- how much water a camel can drink. And so I didn't know who to go with on this, and AI kept giving me varying answers, and so I wasn't going to trust that. So I went with the Cleveland Zoological Society. Um, if you want the link, I can give it to you. Truth or Tale Camel's Hump <laughs> was the article. A camel, according to the Cleveland Zoological Society, can drink up to 50 gallons of water if it's thirsty. And a fully grown camel can drink up to thirty gallons in just ten minutes. That means, do you remember how many camels he brought with him? Ten. That means that somewhere between three and five hundred gallons of water is what it would take for the for the camels to be fully watered until they finished drinking. And so it says in verse 20, she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran again to the well to draw water and she drew for all his camels and the man gazed at her in silence to learn whether or not the Lord had prospered his journey or not or whether she would drop dead, it says in, in, that's in the Hebrew. (laughs) Like uh, Robert Alter, the UC Berkeley Hebrew scholar said here, this is the closest anyone comes in Genesis to a feat of Homeric heroism. Rebecca hurrying down the steps of the well would have been a nonstop blur of motion in order to carry up all this water in a single jug. And so Rebecca here did not just give Eliezer a cup of water. He didn't, she didn't just do the minimum of what he had asked God, like give me a sign. It was way over and above. Now, is this always the way God works? Is this a viable approach? There's, you know, we see this as they wrestle through that then. like Eliezer explains it to her, asks her who she is, and then she goes and tells her brother, and then Laban, which if you know the way Laban's story goes, this even is funnier, the way that this begins. But... And so then Laban and Bethuel, their response, you know, the, there's a difference between the way that Eliezer talks about this and the way that Laban and Bethuel receive it. Like, la, notice that what, like, Laban and Bethuel receive it, and they're like, well, that's it. Like, all right, that's, their, their literal their response was, well, it's come from the Lord. We can't speak good or bad. Sure, Rebecca's yours. They used to say, like, well, can you give us 10 days? And Eliezer's pushy. Like, no, we've got to go now. It's the next morning. And they're like, well, I guess ask Rebecca. And she's like, sure, I'll go. But Eliezer, though, I want to notice this. The care that he takes. He recounted his whole story. He stated it clearly. He tried to be fairly objective in it. This is where I, where I came from. This is the process. This is what I asked, what I prayed. He doesn't claim definitively that it is God's will. He says, you know, tell me. If not, tell me that, you know, let me know whether I'm turning to the right hand or the left. I'm freed from the oath no matter what. He let the interpretation come to others, and I think that is so important because discerning God's will on your own can be a really dangerous pursuit, but he brings those things to others and allows them to speak into it. In our own lives, there have been times in my life when I've had people come to me and say, like, God told me this or told me, like, I am a prophet. God has sent to you to tell you this. Um, That always, for me, raises immediate suspicion. But on the other hand, when I've had people come to me in my life and say, hey, do with this what you will, but I feel like you might need to hear this. That's completely different. When we go through things in our lives, or if we have a moment where we say, Lord, I'm, you know, I have these two options in a decision, and I don't know how to make them, and so maybe here's a way that you can tell me what the clarity is. And it comes to a point where we think we might have clarity. Rather than just hold that into ourselves, why not involve people around us that are close to us, other Christians in our lives, to be able to say, hey, here's what I'm facing. Here's the decision. Here's what I've been praying. Here's what I see. What do you see? Is this, am I missing it here? Am I listening to the right spirit? And help me interpret this. Because God does care about the specifics of our lives. And so the servant takes that approach and then turns and says, all right, this is how it's all progressed. Now what do you think? But do you see what Abraham does in all of this? Nothing. He and Sarah spent 25 years meddling And now, when you would expect parents to meddle most when it comes to their their kid's wedding, he sits back and lets God take care of everything. His journey brought him to faith. All right, third, and I have to move quickly, faith frees us to enjoy God's good gifts. I love this because Rebecca takes a pretty big risk, right? This guy shows up out of nowhere with 10 camels, gives her a couple of gold bracelets and a ring, and she's like, sure, I'll go, (laughs) Like, she's never met Isaac, she hasn't seen Isaac, she's an attractive young woman, she doesn't know if, what I, if she's going to be attracted to Isaac, she, like sight unseen, she doesn't know if he's a jerk, I mean, you've got this guy, Abraham's been blessed greatly and has all of these things and herds and flocks and silver and gold, and, and, he's an, and you're going to marry an only child, like, is he going to have, like, an ego thing, like, is, does he know how to share, she trusted enough that God was in this to agree to marry him. And Isaac took a risk too. Eliezer shows up in the field, and we have her meet cute. We don't know how gracefully Rebecca did or did not get down from that camel. But she quickly puts a veil on, so she, he didn't actually get, a, get to see her. She wasn't unveiled until after the wedding. In sight unseen, he married a woman he had never met that was from another place. But in God's timing and provision, it was a match. Isaac was comforted in the wake of his mother's death. And God was putting the pieces together to continue to fulfill his promise and to bless all the people of the world. The Bible doesn't hold back on stuff that makes us blush. When it says that he took her into the tent of Sarah and she comforted him, it is telling us that they came together, husband and wife, that sex is God's good gift to us. And like all good gifts, when it's enjoyed in the way that God has given it to us, it is a comfort and a, and a joy to be able to, and to, be, to enjoy together. This is why when God, this is very much like when God brought the woman to Adam and he was comforted after he had felt alone and, and he cried out, here at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And, and so, but like all good gifts, <clears throat> It's to be enjoyed at its best, but like fire, it can be good and comforting and warming, but let out of the fireplace, it can also burn the house down. And so there's this, we need to realize this, so that faith frees us to enjoy God's good gifts. God brought Rebecca to Isaac, and the two became one. And I, Christians struggle, religious people struggle to enjoy the good gifts of life. And it shouldn't be that way. And what is the image that our world has of Christians? I don't think it's life of the party. People that really like suck the marrow out of life and enjoy life to the full. I think we see that in the image that our world has of what Christians are when you, if you go watch Fantastic Beasts and see joyless, angry, fixated people. And how do we get there? I think there can be empty moralism in a battle that rages within us. But at its core, if we fail to believe in the promises of God, then we're still going to be trying to control the outcomes of our lives. If we fail to believe that God cares about the details of our lives, then we better be sure to see to them. And so we've got to be sure to be diligent and hypervigilant all the time. And so we can never enjoy life because We've got to be the ones that are, that are sanctifying ourselves and everyone around us. At the core of it, I think it's because we don't want to surrender anything. And an inability to surrender in our lives will bring joylessness. Because it bring, we have this in, we, what we do enjoy is an illusion of control. And so we cloak it in spiritual language. We take our judgmentalism toward other people and we cloak it as having high morals We take our greed and we cloak it as good stewardship of the Lord's gifts. We take our gossip and slander and cloak it as truth-telling. This is what the Christmas carol tells us. I love a Christmas carol. I love various versions of it, though no one will ever top Michael Caine and the Muppets. (laughs) The next closest, I think, is Patrick Stewart. But Too often, Christians, followers of Jesus, who claim that that God has given us life in abundance for eternity and now and freed us from chains of sin and given us the ability to live and to love the way that he loves people and to be a blessing, a conduit of his grace to the entire world, Christians too often look like the joyless miserliness of Scrooge. And when, when he was faced, though, realize this, that what happens in that movie, or play, or book, <laughs> what happens in that story? Well, he gets faced with his own sin, his own brokenness. He gets faced with the realities of his life and his joylessness, of his miserliness. He gets, but ultimately, what wakes him up? He gets faced with the reality of death that awaits him. And that's when he's transformed. And his transformation makes him look more like a true Christian. He goes from being judgmental, saying, I won't give to the poor. They've landed themselves there to being compassionate. He goes from being greedy and not giving more coal for a fire to being generous and buying the largest goose in the window. He goes from being slanderous to being uplifting and encouraging. Why? Because he came to a point of realization that there was something more important that he had been missing, that his life that had seemed so principled and so intentional and so particular and so successful was all just a ruse. He came to the end of himself finally, and finally he realized he had no real control, That his story had led him to a point of that he had an emptiness, he had no control, and that his life would be demanded of him that night. And once he realized that he was as good as dead, only then was he able to live. This is the calling of the gospel. When Jesus says, you've got to be willing to lose your life to find it, he is saying, you need to realize you are as good as dead In fact, apart from Christ, you are dead in the trespasses of your sins, but God, through him, can make you alive together with Christ. That that is our hope. That's where we come back to what Bono said, that that moment of surrender is the moment when you choose to lose control. That's what makes it self-surrender. When you choose to lose control of your life, it's that powerlessness, that split second when you realize that you need to trust that some higher power is in control or better be in charge because you aren't. And so what I hope you can wrestle with today Go watch A Christmas Carol, if that helps to press this in, is what is it that you just won't surrender? What is it that you're clinging to and to the control of, feeling like you just need to be in the mix on it to make sure that it goes right? Because today you have an invitation to come to complete surrender, knowing that that will bring you freedom and joy and life. That that is the essence of faith. Because you can have full confidence in God's promises and trust that he cares about the details. And then you can be freed to enjoy the good gifts of God in all their fullness and to suck the marrow out of life, knowing that this is only a shadow of what's to come. Let's pray. Father, would you help us to Live with that kind of abandon. To be able to let go of the things that we are trying to control in our lives that we just have no control over. Would you give us that freedom to come to the end of ourselves, that blissful end of ourselves, and be able to know that we can rest? Would you give us the freedom that we see in Abraham here to have big things looming and to be able to say, you know what, go ahead, because God's got this. To trust, to have that kind of confidence in who you are and what you've promised us in Christ. To be able to have the self-surrender that gives us the freedom to enjoy our lives to the fullest in the trust that you are good and that you are sovereign. And so we pray that you would meet us in this season and in this time to this morning, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.